So this week, I have news editor Jasmine Weber and reporter Valentina Delicia in the studio. And we're going to talk about some of the stories from the last week, including the big MoMA story that we're still researching, but I want to get us up to speed. So hi, Jasmine. Hi, Valentina. Hi there. So Jasmine, you want to get us up to speed? So this week, there's been a lot of news circulating both in and outside of art publishing about Leon Black, the former CEO of Apollo Global Management, as well as the chairman of the Museum of Modern Arts Board of Trustees. Black has been making headlines for quite some time because of his relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. Black was recently revealed to have paid Epstein $158 million between 2012 and 2017, which, keep in mind, was following Epstein's conviction as a sex offender in Florida. That's right, which I think is such a detail that people often forget about the story. Go ahead. Yes. Um, So along with that $158 million, he also gave Epstein a $30 million loan, um, and they exchanged tax advice that ended up saving Black quite a bit of money. So this information came to light after Black's Apollo Global Management firm carried out an investigation about their relationship. And while they found that there was no wrongdoing on Black's part, he did choose to step down from his role. But many in the art world are pointing out the fact that he's faced no repercussions from MoMA for his role on their board, um, which people, including the feminist activist organization, the Guerrilla Girls, have been calling for his removal for quite some time. In terms of recent news, when it comes to Guerrilla Girls, they've renewed their calls for his resignation or for his removal, expecting that a hedge fund should not be holding their executives more accountable than a museum that should be accountable to the public. And a museum that claims that social justice, equality are at the core of their mission in so much of their public programming that they've been putting out in recent years. The thing about that story that really fascinates me is about the fact that Epstein had given supposedly Leon Black legitimate advice related to his art collection. What do you think that even means? Does anyone have any idea? It's quite strange, especially considering all of the news that's come out about Epstein's art collection, Um, like the really strange drawing of or painting of um, Bill Clinton wearing Monica Lewinsky's blue dress and wearing heels that was apparently prominently featured in his Upper East Side apartment. So I'm very curious what art advice he's giving to a MoMA chairman. Exactly. It's not like he had a great art collection to give anyone advice. But, you know, we had did hear in the past, you know, those stories circulating about the New York Academy of Art that he was sort of uh, circulating around at, at one point decades ago, as well as, uh, you know, his connection to Wexler, of course, the gentleman who owns Victoria's Secret. And of course, there's a huge art center at the University of Ohio named after him. So, you know, it makes me wonder, like, was the art world his, uh, I don't know what to call it, but I mean, it's almost like his hunting ground. I mean, because he's such a, he was such a predator, Epstein. So it, it makes me wonder what that's all about. It definitely speaks to the fact that so many of these powerful extremely wealthy folks use art as a way to um, kind of 
soften their public appearance. People see art as such an innocuous hobby at some level. And I think that for people like for him to to involve himself in this world of art, it not only allows him access to super powerful people, it also allows him to wash away some of his public identity because As I mentioned earlier, he was already a convicted sex offender by the time that his relationship with Black was happening. Um, I'm not sure if they already had a business relationship prior to this, but Black's claims that he didn't know anything about Epstein's dealings seem to be false, considering the fact that anyone who Googled Epstein could find out that he was a convicted sex offender even if they didn't know the extent to which his sex trafficking was happening. And it leaves a lot of people, of course, wondering why Black is being allowed to walk away from the fact that he had this relationship with someone like Epstein and and to what extent he really did know what was going on behind the scenes. But from what I understand, I mean, Black was removed as CEO or stepped down as CEO, but he's still on the board. Isn't that true? Yes, he's not um he's not being fully removed for the from the company. This is in a lot of ways a symbolic gesture. Sounds more like for the investors and just other people yeah. putting money in. It doesn't it doesn't sound <laughs> so so Jasmine, why why does Momo want to keep him on the board? I mean, what, what's the thinking there? Because I can't imagine most people in the museum or at least most rational people in the museum aren't like, "Wait a minute, why is he still here?" To that, we don't have much of an answer. We have not gotten any response to our inquiries from MoMA. Our One of our reporters, Hakeem Bashara, has been covering the Black saga quite frequently and has yet to receive a response. Valentina, as someone who has reached out to MoMA many times for your own reporting, I think you can attest to that as well. Yes, absolutely. We've heard radio silence from MoMA on this topic and whether there are internal conversations about removing Leon Black from the board at this time, we're not privy to them. Um, and certainly, as you you both know, we've had internal conversations about this silence, how frustrating it is and, and how we all really, there's no way uh, to condone his presence on this board any longer. Yeah, I mean, I think for a lot of people who may not know, MoMA has been infamous for not responding to media inquiries in general, but on this topic in particular, I think they do it the most. But, you know, I mean, I think we should mention that Leon Black's art collection might be a motivating factor to keep him on the board, because as many people know, he has one of the only copies of uh, Edward Munch's The Scream, um, which was on display very prominently a few years ago at the Museum of Modern Art, and as well as other supposedly very well-known, very blue-chip art. So I imagine the museums also got their eye on that, though it just makes me wonder, like, it, it, you know, are museums sort of giving up all of their ethics for these for these luxury art objects? I, it just, it baffles my mind a little, but uh, here we are. I mean, we were just yesterday looking at MoMA's code of conduct for board members, which is a public on its website, specifically says that board members and trustees have a degree of ethical commitment in their outside activities. Um, And so it really makes you think about whether MoMA is honoring that by keeping Leon Black on its board and certainly by not making any public statements about his presence on it. Good point. Good point. The day after we recorded this podcast, we published a letter and a number of statements 
when over 150 artists called for Leon Black's removal from the Museum of Modern Art's board over Jeffrey Epstein and their financial ties. I also wanted to do a little correction. I had mentioned the Wexner Art Center, but in reality, the name of it is the Wexner Center for the Arts, and it's at Ohio State University, not Ohio University. And of course, that was funded by Leslie Wexner, who is the owner of Victoria's Secret. Now that we got that out of the way, let's continue. So Valentina has been very closely covering the situation in Cuba, where many of the artists in the country have been at odds with the government. Um, We've covered a series of arrests, a series of censorships, hunger strikes, um, and different forms of protest that these activist artists on the island have been carrying out for many years in protest of the government's stranglehold on the arts and their attempts to censor progressive artists who are making content that goes against what the government deems appropriate and in line with the government's vision for arts on the island. So Valentina, if you could speak a little bit about the most recent protest and the aftermath that sort of followed with artists trying to hold the the Cuban government accountable. Absolutely. So last Wednesday, several artists and activists gathered in front of the Ministry of Culture in Havana to hold sort of peaceful demonstration and homage to Jose Martí, who, of course, is a writer and poet from Cuba that's known as the symbol of Cuba's independence from Spain. Um, There was a scuffle that ensued between the group and the Minister of Culture, Alpidio Alonso, who is seen in a video that's posted on social media, apparently hitting a journalist that was in the crowd, journalist Mauricio Mendoza. And after the scuffle, police arrived and detained the participants. And although we don't have footage from that moment, as a lot of the cell phones were taken away, which is something that's very common when these detainments happen in Cuba, several sources report that there was violence when they were taken in a bus, which again is, sadly quite common. The group, again, was attempting to stage a peaceful homage to the poet. They had requested that armed guards leave the building for the demonstration, and the Minister of Culture refused that request. And um, then, of course, the violence from the minister ensued. And as of today, we actually have a latest update. Members of the 27N movement, which is a collective of artists and activists that formed last year on November 27th to demand artistic liberties, freedom of speech from the Cuban government, they are requesting that the Minister of Culture, Alpidio Alonso, resign or um, be actually forced out by the Cuban government. The group has attempted several times um, to hold peaceful dialogues with the Ministry of Culture and it has not been fruitful yet. And we've seen people like Tania Bruguera, poet Catherine Bisquet, detained several times simply for trying to have these peaceful dialogues. So we'll see what comes out of this petition, but there's certainly a lot of efforts for change in Cuba right now. And I'd say on that note, Valentina, if you could talk a little bit about PEN America's Guide for Persecuted Artists, which uh, the group, which is known for its efforts to raise awareness about and end censorship of writer voices around the world. They recently came out with a handbook to help artists in countries or in situations 
where they might be persecuted or penalized for voicing their honest opinions about the government or voicing their honest opinions about things like LGBTQ rights, racism, et cetera, that the government might otherwise want to censor. So this is a way for them to sort of anticipate what might happen to them and also figure out legally what their rights are in these kinds of situations. Yeah, exactly. This is actually a free handbook. It's online. It's published on PEN America's website. And ironically, um, it was released that same week that this incident took place in Havana um, and actually includes testimonies by artists like Tania Bruguera and also other artists that are facing persecution and oppression and censorship in these countries, including Lebanese singer Hamed Sino, American visual artist Red Scott, and the Chinese-American filmmaker Nanfu Wang. The handbook is really I, when I cover this, I said it in my piece, I think it's a great resource for artists, but it's also just a fantastic guide for any individuals that are facing oppression or censorship and who are interested in the field of social justice. And the book covers a lot of different topics. Some of them are very practical, like how to boost your online security. Others are about understanding freedom of speech laws in different countries and how authorities um, circumvent these and you know ways to be prepared, prevent these attacks on creative freedom, and then others have more to do with the aftermath of incidents of persecution and oppression, like how to deal with the psychological trauma. Um, so it's really a really broad range of topics and it includes interviews with artists who have been in the trenches and whose testimonies are quite personal, quite intimate, and frankly, heartbreaking in a lot of instances. Then I think we have a, we also reported on a story just recently, Valentina, I think it was you about Mexico's demands of uh, Christie's. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes, this week we reported on the Instituto Nacional de Antropología e Historia, which is the National Institute for Anthropology and History in Mexico, asking Christie's to cancel a sale of pre-Hispanic objects that's scheduled to take place on February 9th in Paris, because several of these objects, 30 in total, um, Ina claims, are part of the nation's cultural heritage and should be returned. It's also claimed more recently that three objects in the sale are fakes, including the second highest, most valued lot in the sale, which carries an estimate of um, a high estimate of over half a million U.S. dollars. The piece, which is a stone mask from Teotihuacan, belonged to the collection of Pierre Matisse, who is the youngest son of the modern painter Henri Matisse. And it's dating from circa 450 to 650 CE, but uh, the Mexican institution is claiming that it's fake. So there's two separate complaints going on here. One is about respecting the nation's patrimony, cultural patrimony, returning these objects to the territories that they came from. And then on the other hand, asserting the expertise of Mexican archaeologists and historians who are claiming that several of the objects in the sale don't hold water as authentics. When we reached out to Christie's for comments, they mentioned that they plan on moving forward with the sale on February 9th and that uh, the works are, quote, being legitimately sold as part of a transparent and legally compliant public sale process. A spokesperson also added that the auction house has not been provided with any evidence that would challenge the lawfulness of the sale and um, that they would carry out further investigation if they had been. It's always interesting how, how the powerful always rely on the law to justify what they do. Just I know, the very vague lawfulness. <laughs> it's so true. 
And I know that there's another story, Jasmine, that happened this week at the Museum of the Bible about the restitution of uh, thousands of objects to Egypt and Iraq. Do you want to get us up to speed on that one? So in the past few years, a lot of people have become familiar with the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. because of its very unusual founder. Stephen Green, the founder and chairman of the museum, is also the president of Hobby Lobby, the craft store, which has come under fire for its own reasons because of Green's cozy relationship with Trump and its reputation as a sort of as a sort of conservative craft store, as opposed to somewhere like Michael's or Joanne's. So more insidiously, Green has been known to exhibit fakes and looted artifacts in this museum that are really contributing to a harmful ring of trafficking and this sort of global economy for stolen cultural artifacts. And for these objects to be put on display at a quote-unquote reputable museum is really disrespectful, A, to the nations that these works have been stolen from, but also really kind of throw a wrench in the history that anthropologists are trying to create surrounding these cultural heritages. So recently, the museum returned a number of objects to Egypt. Over 5,000 artifacts were returned following almost five years of efforts on Egypt's behalf. The objects were handed over to the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and eventually returned. Um, They include manuscripts and papyrus fragments, including Christian prayers that were written in Arabic and Coptic. So Green's take on the matter came in the form of a statement where he said, in 2009, when I began acquiring biblical manuscripts and artifacts for what would ultimately form the collection at the Museum of the Bible, I knew little about the world of collecting. It is well known that I trusted the wrong people to guide me and unwittingly dealt with unscrupulous dealers in those early years. One area where I fell short was not appreciating the importance of the provenance of the items I purchased. And I think that this quote is especially interesting considering the fact that just years ago, the Museum of the Bible put on display supposed fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls that were almost absolutely fake. And the museum acknowledged that they knew that they were likely fake, but they chose to exhibit them anyway. And I think that tells you just about everything you need to know about the ethics of a museum like this. I think I think it's really also absurd that a billionaire somehow couldn't figure out what provenance is and that one should look into like they he created a museum which let's be frank museum of the bible sounds very um you know has a very clear point of view i think that that's pretty clear um and uh you know for him to say that he doesn't he didn't know about this it's just that that that's surprising to me i mean i i think after spending millions and millions of dollars and i think one of the things in the story that i think was really important to note is some of these uh, some of these trafficking and antiquities trafficking, as well as the forgeries that are emerging more and more the, of these ancient relics, they were partly buoyed by the fact that uh, there are incredibly rich evangelicals like the Green family that are willing to pay for these things. So, you know, his ignorance sadly seemed to have led to a lot of other problems, and here we are. Absolutely. And on top of the um, the return of the 5,000 objects to Egypt, Green also said that they 
were able to, through um, the Department of Homeland Security, return over 8,000 clay objects to Iraq, which in total is 13,000 looted cultural artifacts and many more that are probably still on display. I mean, the thing that blows me after like maybe the 4,000th object, you would look into it, right? Like, yeah, right. <laughs> I, just, I just feel like at that point, you're like, okay, well, I have 4,000 objects. Maybe I should hire a professional or, or someone to come in. And, you know, my fear is, is that he probably did and then just didn't want to listen to them, you know, in the way that many billionaires that we've uh, encountered in the last few years have done, so... Who knows? But let, let's end with a slightly more optimistic story. Geez, Bend. Yeah, I think a lot of our readers were really excited to see that the quilt makers of Geez, Bend are selling their works online for the first time on Etsy. Uh, so Geez, Bend has really become synonymous with quilt making and craft in many museum settings. This is a cohort of women from a rural Alabama community who for generations have been making these extremely beautiful hand-sewn quilts. And the women of this community have been collaborating and represented by Souls Grown Deep, an organization that focuses on Black Southern artists and bringing them into fine art museums for quite some time. And so now the pair is working with Etsy to sell works by nine of these G's Ben quilt makers for between $27 and $5,500 per piece, which if you consider the fact that many of these works can be found hanging in very well-known museums around the world, this really is a bargain. It's a steal. I yeah. mean, it's so low. It kind of blew my mind when I saw those prices. And I just want to mention for those who may not know G's Bend, of course, one of the recent famous examples was, of course, Amy Sherrill's portrait of Michelle Obama and how the skirt and, and part of the portrait was inspired by the quilt makers of G's Bend. So just to give you a little bit of context to like even show how the influence of these quilt makers have been, has been far and extensive. And I just think it's such a beautiful story that, you know, hopefully this will help um, that community of creators to support their work more long-term. And one of the things that's so great about the partnership is that Etsy actually gave a $50,000 grant to Nest, which is an, another organization that partnered with Souls Grown Deep and the G's Bend Quilt Makers to help them set up the shops. So along with that $50,000 grant to help them um, to provide resources and education about online sales, Nest has put $100,000 into the community to aid the income of these nine quilters. So I think that not only is this uh, great in the, in the sense that these works are now available online, but it really is an example of nonprofits putting their money where their mouth is to really help an underserved community and to recognize that for many people selling your work online is not accessible because many people don't necessarily have digital literacy. Some of these women are older. Many of them um, are actually descended from earlier generations of G's Ben quilt makers, which they explain in their listings. And so putting their money where their mouth is, um, rather than just throwing them in and saying, hey, people would love to see your work online, I think is a really important aspect of this. And it's a good example for other nonprofits who are trying to work with marginalized communities, but are missing the mark because they're not realizing that they need to put the resources behind it to have it succeed. 
Wow. I love that you said all that, Jasmine. I also, I love Etsy personally. And I love that a lot of these like art selling platforms online are not exactly, like you said, they're not accessible. And they also sometimes require a middleman. So they require the artist to have a gallery or to have just a third party, um, you know, representing their work. And I love that artists can just go on Etsy. And I mean, certainly I bought stuff off there and it's always such a great experience and you do feel really connected with the creator. So I don't know, this is just a really heartwarming example of uh, Etsy doing good. And I love that. I agree with both of you. And I think people should check out their shops because I mean, it is affordable. And honestly, the stuff is beautiful. And there are all types of things from masks to bags to quilts. So check it out. So thank you, Jasmine. Thank you, Valentina, for joining me this week. Thank you, Harag. The music is Jam by Darkstar, which was released on their album Civic Jams by Warp Records. My name is Harag Vartanyan, the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening and stay safe. Going wild, going wild, chasing me.